Hello and welcome back to this free episode of TF. We are in an unusual and new configuration today. It is Riley in studio with Nate. Yeah, that's correct. I'm in studio. I came in on the weekend to handle some stuff before I, I, I took uh, two weeks on a sort of working holiday with my wife. And uh, well, uh, basically, Donkey Kong showed up in the studio and threw fucking barrels at all of our plans. <laughs> and so now the guy who is normally twiddling knobs and connecting things and telling people to talk into their microphones is on. Now, people know me from the show that I am at live shows. I am in the cast. But uh, it became obvious a couple of years ago that... Uh, when we were doing all remote recordings that like someone had to fucking stage manage otherwise it would be a nightmare and six if it's five five hosts and a guest then it's basically a blazing squad song and no one likes blazing squad anymore so mm, mm, all right citation. fine. citations needed right yeah. fine his you can go into a treatise on defending the blazing squad um i well i mean i just want to reiterate but i'm upset and like no one's found out this information and i'm really desperate to find it there were free me- there were free like reserve members of the blazing squad according to like the official like website and i want to find out who they were what it was like to be a reserve member of the blazing yes, squad. so blazing squad had defense in depth is what you're saying it's yeah. a, you you're only on blazing squad one out of every six weekends <laughs> it's a nice way to get away from home well, who, are they? A little holiday. Who, are, who, who are the I, I want to find the reserve ones i've got so many questions to ask so if you do know anything about them then what do you think the blazing squad reservists are up to now i know i know for a fact at least one of them is like shilling a coin on instagram not even though, uh, just just based on the personality type. I, I I feel as though it must be very very challenging because even though they were financially successful, there were so many members that you basically got enough to buy like a decorative coaster for your house, <laughs> and so like anything that looks like it's going to pay dividends, where you can trade on the name brand recognition of the Blazing Squad, you're going to have yeah. to use it. And whether that's crypto, whether that's NFTs, whether that's um, what's it called? Uh, DAOs, whatever it is. I was watching a documentary for my other show, like uh, the uh, a few weeks ago, which was about like boy bands and like the economics of the boy bands in like the nineties and the two thousands. And so, even when you have these very successful boy bands in Britain, um, or like uh, pop bands and stuff like S Club Seven and everything, like these members aren't really making any money at all, despite the fact that they are sort of like the most popular bands and like in the UK and like a lot of Europe as well. So imagine like the Blazing Squad who sort of come afterwards, um, who are probably making far less money in a much more precarious like situation for pop music. This is also like you know around about the time when like you know you have your pop idols and everything, but you also have like fifteen members. You get like a two week window where you make a little bit of money from iTunes ringtone checks. And then like people stop using ringtones and no more money. Exactly. But I also wonder whether this is just why you don't have like boy, like beyond Korea where like the government funds boy bands. Yeah, like, yeah where you basically you don't have really, to fucking, yeah. you get, you get, you get, you get assigned <laughs> to a military barracks for boy bands. Yeah, they're actually, we, they're actually our boy band reservists. I know there are. <laughs> I believe me, I know. We, them. we okay. no longer, so we no longer have an economy of boy band for boy bands. And I think that's why, uh, that's why we are in the situation that we're in. Well, uh, if we want to talk a little bit about the situation that we're in, I think I owe it to all of us uh, to start as, as we did in Brisbane. Last time we were recording in this configuration with, of course, our friend Aiden Taco Jones as the guest with an update on the Hooning situation, which has developed 
what are the Hoons except the Australian version of a Blazing Squad? <laughs> well, well. So, unfortunately, in the okay, so like I, I feel as though uh, you know we had our the initial uh, ascendancy of the Hoon saga happened in Australia, where we fell in love with Hooning all over again, and now we're in a bit of an Empire Strikes Back uh, era of the Hoon saga, where uh, Australia's Queensland government has effectively criminalized our podcast for glorifying hooning. <laughs> it is because, I'll explain, uh, they are, they're saying Australia's government, and this is a, po- a press release, is taking, Australia's Queensland government, excuse me, is taking no prisoners as it's making an offense to even encourage someone to watch a burnout or an illegal street race, which makes us criminals in Queensland for glorifying hooning. Whoa. Well, okay. So, so do you think like we're, ne- we're never going to be allowed to go back? I don't think is we Mi- can go is back. Is Milo going to get arrested at the border? Well, he's not in Australia anymore. Is no, he? he's but, in Indonesia, yeah. but maybe they'll get an Interpol notice to arrest him <laughs> on hoon related offenses. Uh, so, material support of hooning. It says it is. It will be an offense to participate in or be a spectator at a group hooning activity. Uh, it will be an offense to organize, promote, or encourage others to participate or be a spectator at a group hooning. This is one of these laws that is so broad that it's like, if your carpool fucks up just a little, like if you speed in a carpool, I imagine some overzealous Brisbane prosecutor is going to be like, I'm putting you in jail for hooning. Yeah, you get, you get like, all you got to do is tweet or post on TikTok enthusiastically about burnouts. And then they just decide that you're the the Anwar al-Awlaki of Hooning and they fucking drone strike your house in the Gold Coast. <laughs> like, I'm just imagining what the Hooning to beak would be. Like, just, you know, just like a really glossy, like sort of advice for the uninitiated kind of magazine to try to turn people towards, who radicalize them towards Hooning. Yeah, to ra- towards the very austere 7th century interpretation of Hooning <laughs> that was <laughs> popular in, in, in the Arabian Peninsula that would have been practiced by Muhammad and his compatriots. <laughs> I will say this too, it's very funny, but in Australia, there's a thing that, that gets written out of Australia's history because Australia has so much uh, of a, well, a little problem with racism and also it was colonized by the British and some of this relates to Britain's fucking relationship with its colonies in India. But in Western Australia in the 19th century, <laughs> you basically couldn't have a Pony Express and you couldn't have railroads because horses can't fucking survive in those temperatures. But you know who can? Camels. But both Brits could not fucking get a camel to do anything, certainly not run a mail route. So what they <laughs> did was they brought uh, Pashtun people from what's now Pakistan and Afghanistan to Australia to set up basically camel mail routes. And like the thing about it was, is it being fucking Australia, like these guys settled, but if they went back or they to try to bring their families, they weren't allowed back in the country. But like, I want to say the first mosque in Australia was, was built in like the 1840s because these guys were settled there. And like, it's absolutely a part of Australian history. It's just one of these things that's kind of written out because, you know, now, now they don't want to be like, oh yeah, like basically like uh, there was a, a significant Muslim community in this country long before your fucking extremely sunburned ass moved here in the 1970s. But, you know, so it goes on. It will be illegal to possess certain items used to facilitate group hooning events, such as false number plates, which fair enough, or excessive spare tires. So you can no longer be too prepared for a flat if you're going to like have your carpool go a little bit off the rails. Isn't there like a- there must be a risk of like overreach here because like what if you are going too fast and your car breaks down and like some police officer rather than trying to help you is like you're hooning, you're going to like Australian Gitmo. Uh, I mean, Australian Gitmo is definitely a thing. They call it fucking Nauru or Christmas yeah, Island. I, I, but- I was trying to think though that actually does exist, but like what is it called? I was like, yeah, they're going to send you, they're going to send you to like the island. Um, 
all because yeah, all because you were sort of going above the speed limit, mm-hmm. um, going, going above the speed limit, and then you had a fun prank fake license plate for your friend Stag do in your car that says yeah. King Pussy Eda, and you had two, <laughs> and you had a spare tire, and all of this is evidence that you are an undercover Salafist hoon. I, I'm just remembering when you had to like they suddenly created like a sign in roster to allow you to buy cold medicine at like village pantry convenience stores and gas stations in the Midwest in the 2000s because they're like we're cracking down on meth and I can't imagine a government doing that for spare tires but it does seem like they're trending in that direction yeah it's we're gonna get like a Australian breaking bad and it's just about spa- a guy making spare tires who's really good at it did I ever tell anyone about the story about uh, a police officer that showed up at my parents store because they were suspicious that we were selling too much cowpaw because like the sort of cough medicine in the UK, I think, uh, has, fuck, what's it called? But it's like the type of like, you can Cody. get high. Yeah, you Cody, you can like get higher like drink, uh, drinking the cough medicine. There's the um, stuff that yeah. has there's codeine in it and there's the stuff that has a pseudoephedrine in it. And like, I don't, yeah. yeah. I mean, all I know is that like, yeah, they were very suspicious that we were sort of running a ring because we were selling too much cough medicine. Uh, and I find that very, but it's like one of those sort of classic one police officer that doesn't actually know why they're there. Just comes up kind of shambling and like blowing their nose constantly and looking at their shoes and being like, oh, gentlemen, like, yeah, that's, yeah. Milo and I were doing a Vox Pop and got thrown out of a fucking mall by private security. And the guy was doing that and also couldn't stop sneezing the whole time. It was just very, <laughs> I'd only been in Britain like three weeks and I was just like, I didn't realize how much of a free based Anglo experience I was getting. Yeah, there's like there's one thing being arrested by a police officer. There's another sort of one like a, uh, a a civil a civil officer or like a private security guard wanting to sort of like uh, uh, mace you. Um, they have yeah, they have the tiger blood in them. Uh, so this is the l- last thing on the uh, on on this Australian, I guess, not excellence to be honest. Before we move on, this is a uh, police minister Mark Ryan who is had had a an almost poetic. Uh, sort of claim to make. He says, to sum this whole thing up, he said, if you want to tear up our roads, we'll tear up your car. Life is precious. That's what they want. Hold on, hold on. If you want to tear up our roads, we'll tear up your car. Life is precious. Hooning will not be tolerated. That's what they want. They want you to, they want, they want you to, they want their cars to be destroyed. I don't understand. The Hoons are seeking martyrdom. If you kill them, that's what they actually want. (laughs) I mean, surely that's the lesson that you should learn from like the failure of the war on terror, which is that like, if you're fighting, (laughs) if you're fighting people that glorify and love death, then like the thing you should do is actually not, go out of your way to not kill them, right? Make them like incredibly frustrated and mad. I feel like if there's any lesson to learn from that, it's like, and oh. We will fix your car. <laughs> that's right. That's that's we, what you should do. We, we should do. We should fix the car. Give him like a nice paint job. Um, you know, make it so nice that you wouldn't want to destroy it. That would make them furious. Look, Mark Ryan, police Queensland policing minister Mark Ryan. What you need to do is you need to discover an unpoppable tire and then force <laughs> all hoons to have that in their. They'll be just burning out for hours, and the tire will never burst. But it, I, just, yeah. I also just love the second sentence there. We'll tear up your car. Life is precious. Hooning will not be tolerated. I, I just, it's so poetic. There's an extent to which it just kind of reveals that. I mean, look, I know there's actual serious social problems in Australia. It's not paradise, but it does make it make me laugh a bit. This is the stuff that the public figures in law enforcement feel they need to make a big kind of like breathless press releases about. Because at the end of the day, like. I imagine hooning is annoying and dangerous if you say you're driving a fucking minivan full of kids and there's someone doing sick burnouts on the road like that is dangerous right but like it's probably not a huge pressing you know 
on the fucking precipice of disaster social issue. It's just like, but they have, I have seen more press conferences and official statements and weird fucking threatening videos on social media about hooning than anything else. Like Australia basically has like, it has like chill mode or crisis mode. And like the two things I've seen them go into crisis mode is stop the boats and hooning. And they treat stop the boats and hooning the same it's like the same rhetoric the same like you know like camera where like video where a guy's looking straight in the camera and telling you he's gonna fucking steal your car like it's weird i don't understand it uh, look can uh, some australian please help us under oh I, I can actually shed some light on how this works actually it's it's quite a bit like britain and the reason it seems so uncanny is that that ju- rather than like the uh, sort of curtain twitching that our our sort of right-wing local media encourages right it's like for example a good example is um just today, you know, so the Daily Mail basically has done a hit job on a private citizen for having like bat for having like, you know, Corbinite tweets and like trying to get the Brecon Beacons uh, Park renamed to its original Welsh name. Right. There was a whole article on on just excavating every detail of his private life for daring to participate in public life d- while yeah, being and d- progressive. And- and also but, just to add that this reporter who's been doing this type of stuff, like his beat has literally kind of been for the past few months, at least to just like find anyone on Twitter who is like saying anything remotely kind of like anti-Tory or uh, like perceived to sort of be like, you know, cause the whole, the whole sort of like advanced argument or well, the arguments that they're trying to advance now as like the government is basically collapse or like the system is collapsing under its own contradictions is that, oh no, it's actually like woke people on Twitter that are undermining um, all the efforts that the government are trying to make to sort of like fix things. And so by kind of instigating a pylon via our front pages, um, we can, you know, return, you know, we can uh, like facilitate the government. I don't even know. I don't even know if they believe Yeah, the end goal doesn't really make any sense, but it's like there's some sort of loop there where it's like as long as we, if we just hold the public to account and make people answer for like their pro-Corbyn tweets from 2017 or 2019, then that can somehow lead us to bung a bob for big ben's bongs for brexit or whatever the The reason i bring this up though is that it's the same that's the sort of like local news cycle in the uk yeah that's that's where they get the red meat in australia the local news cycle is just sick burnout yeah sick burnouts uh dull bludgers uh (laughs) fucking like stories about people smoking ice yeah like it's it's but it does feel a little bit more parochial and i don't know which is i don't want to say the australian media is is less harmful because like it's still murdoch media it's still it's just it's just adapted to the local climate you know you know what it is it's a little bit more whimsical at least at least it seems more whimsical from here right then right australians please stop grinding your teeth please please stop uh loading up in a boat for the six month journey to come here and beat our asses we're just winging it based on what we know and and we love your culture and we love your country. And I really wish I had a sick Holden Commodore that I could fucking break, pop the tires on. Yeah, that's we all just want the, the Holden Commodore of the spirit so we can spiritually <laughs> pop eating its tires. a meat pie, blasting in excess, <laughs> getting pulled over by the cops, destroying my tires on a road designed to destroy my tires. And I drove there intentionally mm-hmm. like that just seems like paradise. Yeah, getting just popping your tires and then immediately seven police cars descend on you and pick up the only gun in Australia to do a legal kill. <laughs> um, so, but I also, you know, I think it's it's worth remembering. It's a sort of on what I was saying that comparison about the um, this guy who just camp again made a just campaign to say, hey, why don't we just change the name of this national park to a Welsh name because it's in Wales and this is what it would have been called. Um, 
just the the there's this concept I think is very useful when thinking about the British media. I'm doing a little bit of a segue here, which is that you have to imagine, and I think this has been true for a very long time. Uh, it used to be mostly true with uh, celebrities, where there's the the sort of um, again like I think there's a prurient uh, element to the curtain twitching British culture that is absolutely encouraged by our press, um, and that they would be at war. They would pick celebrities to be at war with who don't doff their caps to the protection market. But increasingly, as like culture war has just rotted all of the brains of the like and pensioners whose like fucking adult children do not talk to them. Right. The, 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 they have, the Daily Mail and others have understood that the way to like keep the juice flowing is to terrify and frighten and, and infuriate them with this idea that other people you live with who you don't know, but you can imagine are doing no go zones. They're doing woke renamings of parks and all of this stuff. And they will. And the extent to which and I don't think people outside the UK really fully grasp this. They will just try to destroy your fucking life. And also like and Hussein, I, I want to get your perspective on this because I know you knew this more intimately than I do. But but I, I know this from both from reading about it and also from meeting people this has happened to. They'll just make shit up. They'll just fucking make shit up because it's so hard to bring a libel case to court in this country. And even if something is based on like like a, 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 like an event happened, the interpretation of it, yeah. the way it's written in a headline, the re way it's written on a front page article will be so sensationalized to the point that it's, it's, it's just a fabrication. It has no relevance to what's actually happened. And then they'll just publish like a fucking correction to it, either on page 30 a month later or behind a paywall online. That's yeah. such a common thing. They just fucking make shit up. And look, I realize yeah. American media has, is not exactly fucking blameless in this regard. But the degree to which in Britain, if they want to slander you, if they want to smear you, they will just make shit up about you. Like, yeah, well, I, yeah. I mean, this is also like a product of like the structure of how media works in this country anyway. Um, and I don't want to like go, I won't go into like too much detail because it's boring and like, you know, just tedious, but also everyone knows this, but, um, you know, the gussing of like media across the country, uh, you know, so, so on the one hand you have like local media that doesn't really work, um, like on a functional level. And so the national media kind of like, I think as you sort of alluded to, Riley takes on both sort of the qualities of being a national paper, but also sort of this extremely instrumental uh, tool when it comes to directing government policy, because as we, again, as we've talked about, like the intersections between government and media are sort of so, uh, intertwined that like, you know, uh, you have like sort of this over dependent. So as a result, you have like the daily mail acting as if it is a local newspaper, um, profiling a guy who like they claim is sort of trying to change like the title, but they framed it in a way that's like, you know, kind of fixated in the culture wars. And then you also have like a structural issue where it's like at these big papers, you know, there is no sort of, you know, the quality control is minimal, partly because like they just don't fund that, partly because like they just don't, it's not like, you know, um, you know, it, it is not commercially uh, viable in some cases. But then I think there's also this broader recognition that like the point of these newspapers and the point of like new circulation is not to um, distribute information. It is not to kind of like advance democracy in any particular way. It is used as an instrument to achieve political goals. And I think, you know, and in some cases with like, you know, especially with Daily Mail, but like the Telegraph, I think is another good example of this. You know, they sort of very openly say that like, you know, we very much like the fact that we have this very unique and direct influence 
in government and we would vary. And that's kind of like the use of it. That is also why, because, you know, this is, we're recording this on a week when like lots of media organizations have either like shut down entirely or have cut back so much they may as well have shut down entirely. And like the question is like, okay, why do these right-wing outlets like seemingly, you know, why do they not have to do layoffs because they, why aren't they pivoting to AI and stuff like that? And it's fundamentally like, because while they're being funded despite being loss leaders and they're being funded despite like not having ever made any money in their entire lives and like, what is the reason that they are being funded? And I think that's sort of the instrumental question that should be like yeah, because asked they pump, whenever. They, they pump slop straight into the brain. Of and people love, and they love slop. And that's the thing. I think a lot of like the political culture is very much like, very much just, you know, there's a whole thing about like Twitter is not real life, but it's like, well, no, not only is it real life, but it's very much elevated. And what we've kind of, what it's resulted in is like, you know, your daily mails and your telegraphs and stuff, realizing that what the people want is slop and what is actually like politically um, or what can achieve political goals in a faster period of time, especially when you're not making any sort of structural or material demands is to just kind of keep on producing slop until the government ha or like until government ministers have to go up in parliament and talk about how, um, you know, and, and talk and talk very openly about penises. Yeah. That, that, or that like the British equivalent of why is, you know, going on, basically going before Congress and asking why cat turd two has been shadow banned. Like that seems <laughs> ridiculous and American, but I feel as though like members of basically every party in the UK that has, you know, members of parliament having to basically address idiotic, completely fucking imaginary brain dead turf talking points in parliament because well, like, yeah. And well, well, here's like the final thing I want to say, because like, this is a really interesting point um, because it's very much like it very much highlights what how much power like certain media organizations have over like what is allowed to sort of be part of political discourse and what isn't. And like, you know, in, 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 in such a way that like even like left-wing outlets are like have had to engage with that to some level, which I think is quite telling, right? But like where you have two political, like the two main political parties who are sort of being told that they can't really advocate for any kind of like material like change, uh, either because they don't want to or because like, in, you know, in the case of the Labour Party, like, you know, being terrified to do that, then like what they're left with is like, okay, well, what do we talk about to advance our sort of like, you know, political goals, whatever they are, it is to sort of like go on these kind of like, quote unquote, culture war issues that give us, you know, that give favorable profiles and like, you know, favorable headlines and stuff like that. Like it's very, very transparent. And then what's the most frustrating thing about it, which again, like I was watching um, a, the interview on like politics, Joe with uh, Robert Peston. And it's just like, you have these kind of journalists who are sort of just denying that that's, that's the case. Right. And it's just like, and so it becomes this very, very frustrating and you end up checking out and it's just like, well. So in, in this case, right. What I think is the most telling view of the framing, bringing it back to the uh, sort of daily mail hit piece. And by the way, like in this case, it doesn't appear that the daily mail made anything up. All they did was identify his, uh, just identify this guy's like, like like tw like clearly tongue in cheek tweets about like wow Tories sure are pissed off about this and then telling their readers this one identifiable person with a name fucking hates you you should be scared you should be scared of him and continue like descending further into madness it says that the actual like wording here is um, the architect of the name change is a Welsh separatist Twitter troll who appears to have been primarily motivated by a desire to piss off Tories if you find this scandalous. You're not alone. And again, the, the idea is that the there are certain standards that members of the public have to live up to, and the British press will hold you to those standards as a member of the public, which is fucking insane. Yeah, and it's like it's like what they're basically saying is, you know, 
putting this out there and then you're supposed to read between the lines for the part that actually says Britain first death to traitors. Like that's 100% how it works. And it's like, I'm not saying that they are di- directly ordering people to do things like what Thomas Mayer did to um, Joe Cox. But what I am saying is the mentality there is it's like that's the logical endpoint is creating this fear, this otherization and basically telling people the reason why things why, why our society, our culture, our country can't advance or can't get over the problems that are at this point undeniable is because the woke traitors or whatever the fuck whatever that whatever the enemy is that, that like a, a non-white person's face is enough normally for these people but if it's a white person then it has to be like they're a woke leftist traitor or whatever the fuck they want to say and yeah it's it's in a way also it's just i mean i can't it's not like this doesn't work in other countries and other contexts but it feels like it's a little bit like lower effort here it still works like they're they're uh you know like the amount of energy expended to get the result they want seems far lower here than for example like the numbers of like jesse's single you need in america to whip up a fucking trans panic like well it's 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 just that 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 kind of public conversation is so much more ingrained at a structural level here because it's so centralized and the, uh, the, the thing i think is the best way to understand it is to imagine that all of these institutions are so centralized in london among people who are friends yeah that it is mostly so, who went to school together so easy and and the, the, what what always so I, I was a huge Far Side fan when I was a kid. I mm-hmm. loved Gary Larson when Res- I was a respect. twelve year old. Yeah, respect. Uh, I had the two the two like doorstopper books, right? That contain every Far Side ever written. And I've been well, I've been just thinking about the 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 Daily Mail's campaign against a, you know this just guy basically. Uh, just remembering one of my favorite Far Side cartoons, which we'll we'll let's uh, let's see if we can make the uh, episode art uh, for this uh, thumbnail for this episode, which is just. The caption, the world was going down the tubes. They needed a scapegoat and found Wayne. And it's just people protesting outside this guy's house saying, down with Wayne. And that seems to be the valence at which 50% of the British press operates whenever they go into local journalism mode is just identifying the scapegoat of the week. And, you know, this even like as as far back in, um, in even in like sort of 2018, 19, right? Like you remember there was... There were, um, you know, like people who worked at Momentum who would just like have their fucking like, you know, entire private lives scraped by Guido Fox, who, again, how dare you participate in politics as a progressive? A doctor who's like says, I cannot work under these conditions again, like has their fucking bins rifled through. And uh, then well, it's like it's like when um, when when the guy, the parent of a newborn who's been treated in the NHS hospital confronted Boris Johnson during like a fucking press meet and greet. And Laura Koonsberg found his Twitter profile and shared it. It was like, this is him here. You know what I mean? Like all that stuff in 2019. It's basically like, it sounds like a glib sort of one-liner to say that the British media sees its role as holding the public to account. But that that is fundamentally what they do. And I was also going to make the joke that, yeah, you're right. 50% of the time it's down with Wayne. And the other 50% of the time in British media, it's sharing pictures of local delicacies that are fundamentally indistinguishable from the cow tools cartoon <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah, it's a, I, I mean I, i'll never get over putting eels in jello that seems fucked to I, me look, i realize that stargazy pie is not actually a common thing like it's 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 a specific regional thing and it's pretty rare and most people in this country will not have seen it or had it but i gotta be honest with you when you see it's like oh a pie with fish heads sticking out of it it just kind of looks i don't know lovecraftian it looks like the kind of thing that someone eats on a dare. 
Yeah, yeah. It's uh, for uh, for Americans. There is a real British food that has. It's a pie that has pilchards sticking out of it head first for some reason. <laughs> Just look up stargazy pie. Yeah, it's real. It's a real thing. It's a real thing. So are jelly deals. There's a jelly deals place down the street from where I live in South London. Like it's real. There's one last little bit of um, sort of current events I wanted to talk about. This is something actually that I saw while on the way into the studio this morning, which uh, completely floored me. Which is that. The labor, like, because you can't, like, labor has to now keep offering sort of what they would, they have to Monday morning quarterback, Monday night quarterback, whatever, Monday quarterback, all of the things that the, the Tories are doing. But of course, they can't do it, you know, too much it's, because it's, of the whole thing. It's typically so, Monday morning quarterback because cool. football's played typically on either Sunday, Sunday afternoons or Monday nights. Basically, uh, the, and they, so you have to come up with a solution to the housing crisis that, you know, is not going to do anything because doing things, as we all know, uh, has been sort of ruled out of the political options. And so, Lisa Nandy, Labor's sort of shadow housing and leveling up minister, whatever their fucking fake job title is, uh, has said that we are going to have a state-backed mortgage insurer, which, if you under, if you know um, the hits, let's say, of uh, the recent housing, cr- the housing crisis <laughs> in two thousand seven and eight. You mean like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac? Yeah. The only difference, of course, is those were sort of semi-private institutions. The bailout was to bring them under state control, but to essentially say, look, we need to get more people into housing. The price of housing can never be allowed to go down. And also, we can't spend any money on it. What we are going to do is this strange financial trick where people are just going to be able to get into more debt, essentially. It's going to be ways to make higher debt loads possible. One of those things is mortgage insurance. And the idea that in 2023 that we are looking at creating a kind of pre-bailed out Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac is astonishing to me because the <laughs> casino the casino must continue. Because, yeah, I mean, there were there were talks about making 40-year mortgages, for example. Uh, one thing that you'll see quite commonly in, in, in inner London is shared ownership, where you can buy a place and your mortgage is effectively half price because there's another person buying half of the deed and you that's typically an institutional investor as i understand it and so you pay your mortgage but then also like you i believe have to pay yeah, rent pay rent to the other owner and so and 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 bear in mind the context of this that like we won't even talk about individual houses because they're so expensive in in inner london and even quite frankly in in, in outer london like within the m25 the the ring road it's so incredibly expensive and wages are so low in this country that like th- all of the kind of chicanery we're talking about here is basically to try to create a, a sort of patch for the fact that most people don't earn enough money to get a mortgage or to save for a mortgage. Mm. And even in some situations where there's relatively low percentage deposits required, that's still an onerous amount of money when you look at the prices and also, like, there's just, I don't know, like, the, the one other thing I'd say, too, and, and Riley and Hussein, you both know this really well also, is that by and large, housing quality in this country is dog shit at any price point. Yeah. It's dog shit. It's badly made. It's badly maintained. If it's old, it's shit and drafty. If it's new, it will literally fall apart in five years. There's kind of a sweet spot for stuff, like, that's decently insulated that was built, let's say, between, like, 1960. 60, 1950, 1960, yeah. and 1980. Back when they did a good job by accident. By accident. Well, no, actually, that's back when they d- that when Britain was trying to do a good job for the people, at least some of yeah, the people who lived like, here. Like, like some old, 
it really depends because like that it's not a guarantee because a lot of for example panel built system housing from that era is dog shit because it's super leaky and as a result like you know 50 to 70 years of it just not being watertight has caused huge problems with mold and damp and stuff like that but there are examples of stuff that's well built but by and large housing shit here new housing sucks old housing sucks and also probably has been through like successive iterations of of bad remodels like done on the cheap and so there's this disconnect like on multiple levels there's the disconnect of people don't make enough money in this country to afford afford housing in this country obviously there's the thing that people in fucking right-wing papers love to say which is like well then i don't know move to carlisle or move to preston or move to somewhere where there's cheap housing it's like right but if you don't have a job there that's a challenge and also for better or worse jobs in london pay more they just also, don't houses there enough. are still shit. And I mean, they're still shit. Like a, yeah, they're dog right. shit. They're just yeah. cheaper. Like, you can get a dog shit house for £100,000 instead of £500,000, but, like, you I won't... I think this or- is, yeah. But every time, like, housing, I think, every, like, is sort of the real... Every time you want to learn how, like, you are being gaslit by every institution in this country, I think the best way to think about it is, like, in terms of how am I going to, like, find somewhere to live, right? Because, yes. like, I think at the core of it, it's, you know, when we un- try to understand what British housing is like. It is fundamentally, what if you lived in a place where like nobody actually felt like houses should be places that you should live in? Um, and what I mean is that like- It's a woke idea, that, of course. Yeah, so it's, it's woke to like have a non-leaky roof. Well, again, because there was, again, there was that other tweet. I don't know who said it, but it was like, I thought it was a joke initially because of the way it was written, but it was literally just like, oh, when we, when I was growing up, like, you know, we had loads of condensation in the house and we had to mop it up every hour, but we survived. And I was like, no, this has to be a bit, but no, he was being genuine about it. Or at least like, <laughs> if they didn't appear to be a joke. And it was like, okay. So that, that's either, really- that's either boomer nostalgia or the people who work yeah. at the community leisure center in my neighborhood where they have like yeah. a millennium style building, but the roof isn't insulated and the center of the building is a pool. And so mm. all of that warm, humid air hits the cold roof in winter and causes condensation everywhere in the leisure center it rains inside it rains inside That's so funny in i love gym, this country <laughs> in the gym part like the fucking drop ceiling panels look like dirty diapers they're just sagging oh no yeah well this is the, well this is also the thing you can go into like even loads of public buildings like in the uk and you can just sort of see like you know either they haven't been like updated since you know the 1980s or if they have it's been done in such a way where it just kind of degrades like really fast and it just like it's kind of it adds to just like the experience of misery even like going to like a job center like the local job center around here basically looks so dilapidated and it, there's kind of like you know yeah it, it's it's nuts to watch but i think when we talk about housing i think you know especially i think i, I imagine this would probably date to around like the 80s but possibly before but a genuine situation where it's like, well, the market works in such a way where like houses are still referred to basically as assets. Yeah. And so even when you talk about like, even like during the period of time when I was sort of, when we were sort of being told like in this country that, oh, you know, you should be getting on the housing ladder. The idea would be that like you would move into a house and then you would sell it a few years later when the price would go up and then move to another house and you move to another house and you move to another house. And like the ultimate question that you would sort of ask is like, why, why, why don't you just stay in one house? Like, why don't you buy one house for a decent price and afford it? And stay there um, because that could be your home. Um, and, and also, if you want to buy or if you, rather, if you want to rent a place like, yeah, it, it basically the way it's set up now, it's like, oh, you can rent if you want to be a baby forever and be a mug and get fucked yeah. over forever. But like the only way to have any real semblance of control in terms of like, yeah, well, the price, is- your price of housing and your stability of housing in this country like is to is to. Oh, I mean, I'm not saying it's the only way, but the way that it's framed, the way it's talked about 
it, it, it is implied that the only way you can actually count yourself as being successful sort of in gaming the housing system is owning mm. a place but that becomes well, more, more and more yeah, challenging and, and, and this is the other thing because it's also like you know and we, we've joked about this multiple times but it's like well in living in the uk the only as aspiration you're really allowed to have is to be a landlord, landlord right? or like yeah. of some or of some capacity to be a landlord whether a commercial landlord or like you know a retail landlord and so like some kind of like you know if you your success is really being able to rent something out to someone and forcing them to give you money. And so you have like lots of these, and you have a, you, and you have a political system that is built on that. And, you know, obviously in the post Corbyn period, you have a Labour Party and clearly like a policy like this is very much one of like, you know, we value homeowners because homeowners represent a certain kind of politics that we find desirable. Um, and so you end up in a situation where it's like so obvious that like, no, the crisis around here and the crisis that feeds into so much stuff, whether, whether we're talking about like mental health, whether we're talking about physical health, whether we're talking about like well-being, you know, I, I, you know, there are different elements to this, but like, if you're talking about like people who want families for like, or who, who are looking to have families, for example, right? Like housing is such a fundamental, so it's like the core of that. And mentioning this in any capacity will end will end with you being on the Daily Mail front page list and being called a nonce, right? And also, I'd say too, affected, yeah. I would also say too, that fundamentally, what Riley brought up in the beginning of this segment, the idea of doing like you set up like a, a pre bailed out, like state backed mortgage insurer, that's got nothing to do with people getting they're getting on the housing ladder, getting their first property. Like that's an ancillary benefit to what its actual purpose is, which is ensuring that there is some way for people who are selling to continue selling their houses at inflated prices. Casino has well, to this, keep yeah, those. And, and, and this, homeowners, and this pensioners, yeah. all of the fucking, basically the people who won the generational lottery in this country, mm. that they're insanely inflated housing uh, value, you know, the, the, the value of their, of their yeah. home, their asset, doesn't go down. Because I'm going to be real yeah. with you. There is no fucking way that these dog shit houses are worth 800, 900, thousand pounds a million pounds 1.5 million pounds you'll see insane prices for places mm. that literally look like someone was like oh i won a contest for can you turn a garden shed into a house and the fucking let the council <laughs> recognize it like we're talking stuff that just like it looks as though they got a special like an, like to, to research new kinds of mold like everything looks like shit and like they're not well built and they're drafty by design and yet because like and it's like the thing i'll end on with saying this is that it's not just international money laundering being you know washed through the property market but that's part of it it's not a shortage of housing but that's part of it it's not just lack of density in most places in the united kingdom but that's part of it it's not just terrible fucking transit outside of london to include like greater london exurbs and stuff like that where you're in a situation where if you move out to save money on either a mortgage or rent you spend way more on transit that's unreliable to the point where your only option is either drive everywhere or basically pay thousands of pounds more per year for british rail like it it's not just that but that's part of it but i think the thing about it is that the thing the one thing that i was to say is that all of these things are treated as though they're just like the fucking writ of god and that none of them are alterable and it's like I think it's just, I don't want to be glib about it, but you see some of the, the, the problems that are just kind of compounding and then it'll just be like best, best neighborhoods within a three hour, like best villages within a three hour drive of zone one for with, where you can get a house for under 700,000 pounds. And it's like, great, but that's fucking insane. <laughs> and to bring that back, right, to bring that back around, the idea that the way that these problems are going to be tackled is by enabling 
a constantly growing debt load in an era, but we're going to get to this next, the main sort of meat and potatoes topic of today is going to be about that, of forcing people to take on more and more personal debt and just creating these financial chicaneries to allow them to do that. I mean, just it, it's, it's worth bearing in mind how mortgage insurance works because there's another country that has a state-backed mortgage insurer whose housing market is doing just amazing. Um, and that, of course, is Canada. Oh, God. So yeah. the Because it's actually, it's, this is a really worthwhile, I think, cross-country comparison to make. So how mortgage insurance works generally as a product is that, uh, the, is that the bank will the bank will give you a more a higher rate if the mortgage is insured. And so Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac will say, okay, we will we assess, right, that um, we think you're a good risk. And so we'll write uh, you we'll write your bank a mortgage insurance premium. And therefore, you know, if you go if you are like stop making payments on your house, we'll basically step in and indemnify the bank from a loss. So it's not it's not like a mortgage protection payment that you take out that covers you in the case that you lose your job. It's essentially the protection that the bank takes out, um, and so the and so Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were the were created in the mid twentieth century in order to basically facilitate the financialization of the U.S. of the U.S. housing market because you need to because that's when uh, you know um, like asset prices and stuff start hugely outstripping wages. Return to capital starts hugely outstripping wage growth, and so in order to keep that going, in order to keep people bought into capitalism basically as asset holders. Petite, small asset holders, but asset holders, you need to make sure the price always goes up, despite the fact that wages are pretty stagnant. That's where mortgage insurance comes in because it enables that risk taking. So the, one of the, the the main, I'd say some of the main uh, bailout terms uh, of TARP in the U.S. was essentially look that Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, these created by the government but private institutions. Um, that then basically went bankrupt because they had to they had to pay write out too many losses all at once. They had to pay out too many losses all at once. That's what happens in insurance. It's one of the risks of being an insurer. Um, is that then they had to basically get bailed out so that all of those banks could keep going because otherwise the banks wouldn't get the mortgage insurance payments and everything would fall apart. What happened in Canada is that we had this thing called the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation, the CMHC which before Chrétien's liberal government in the early 90s used to be the federal body that built social housing. Of course, we had to do away with that because that didn't allow the casinoification of housing because then housing is decommodified of its social housing. We all know this. And so the federal, the, and the reason that Canadian, um, that Canadian house prices are so high, or one of them, is that the CMHC switched over to being a mortgage insurer and then, but it is already connected to the big money printer in Ottawa. Right. So it, it's pre bailed out is with the CMHC. And so that's why, like in, in the US, if you look at house prices, especially outside of major cities, you'll see that like the slope, there was a slope change in 2008. And it took a long fucking time to recover from. Yeah. Right. House prices took a long time to recover properly. Stock prices, no, they were right back up. But if you look at house prices in the US, there is an appreciable, um, you know, there is a, actually a disturbance. Right there's an alpha alpha coefficient. There's an alpha change. Right, the slope coefficient stays the same, but we get a, ju- a a jolt down in price. In Canada, because we just we didn't have to do a bailout because the bailout was already legislated in, and that meant that now that Canada has, of like all of sort of like you might say the, the global north as the high the fastest growing house prices in the entire or at least until like the higher interest rates like started putting a dent in it. Right, we had the most casinofied housing economy. Because the CMHC kept on changing its own rules to allow more and more risk taking, to allow private mortgage insurance in, 
and eventually deposits were getting smaller, interest rates were getting higher, and every single generation gets saddled with more debt than the last one, which I assume can go on forever because that's just a fucking pyramid scheme. And I'd also say, too, that Canada's absolutely, like, it's been going on for such an incredibly long time. As Riley pointed out, you can go back and look at commentary about Canada is emerging into a dangerous housing bubble situation from like 09, 10, 11. <laughs> and I remember reading a blog post maybe last year from a guy talking about and analyzing specifically like the greater Toronto area, but just, you know, in general, Canada's housing market. And one of the points he made was like what it would take to bring it down to reasonable levels would require year on year depreciation in housing prices that would be greater each year than the greatest ever <laughs> depreciation in housing prices in Canadian history. And he's like, say, for example, a hypothetical situation where you had like 3% decline year on year, five years in a row, which has never happened. And ever. I may be wrong on that 3% thing, but it's something like, 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 like a single digit. You would need to have the Great Recession about five times. And he was like, that in would, order to just get back to bubble territory. Right. He would be like, that would bring us down to the safe levels of 2014 when we're like, people are like, this is an unsustainable <laughs> bubble and it's the worst in the world. Like, it's genuinely that bad. Canada has done things because like Canada really, really didn't have any kind of like valve to stop insane speculation when, you know, people like speculating from abroad. And it's one of those things where like it becomes hairy territory because you don't want it to be like, oh, fucking immigrants buying our houses. But these weren't immigrants. These were Such a good Canadian accent. These were these were investors in other countries with millions, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, flipping a fucking shed in Vancouver four times in a week, like that kind of thing happening. Canada didn't have any controls on that until relatively recently and so like it's bad for a variety of reasons that in some ways can mirror britain's but like one thing canada has i'm gonna be honest with you it sucks but it does have is a lot of space and so like one thing that kind of is a valve for for example the creator toronto area is just continuing to expand out fucking suburbs further and further out increasing people's commutes horribly but like building new housing oh, no, that there way are people in toronto now who fully have four hour commutes yeah, because yeah that's the only place the they can afford drive until you qualify thing like yeah <laughs> keep going fucking further and further out until you can find a place that you can afford like britain the thing about it is britain is you drive three hours out and the house is still fucking insanely expensive yeah. and also shit and so the just and so just the idea right as as sort of an observer of the housing market in general and as a canadian the idea that we are looking at some combination of either the CMHC or fucking Fannie Mae with a straight face to solve the, the, the all of the elements, Nate, you described of the housing crisis to just do. Hey, you know what? We never had this element in our housing crisis. What if what if we take that powder keg from over there and put it amongst our explosives? Maybe it will be like some get some kind of like Mr. Burns syndrome crisis stabilization where they're all happening at once and so it stays stable. I did fuck it the bind fucking boggles. In, in, I got to be honest with you like in a in a way you have to almost like begrudgingly admire how much they get away with. By they I mean the Tories and just like the British establishment and like the sort of financial institutions that are keeping this moving because like Britain has not exactly been premium good investment territory for a very long time and it's certainly gotten a lot worse in the last 5 years. And it's because of me. I moved here and I ruined everything. If, if it weren't for me, if I just stayed in America, then, then we, would have, uh, you know, we would have luxury Corbynism and everything would work great. Um, there would be no problems. However, I came here and I ruined it for everyone. So now you have to basically live in Tory fuckhole for the rest of your lives. It definitely <laughs> wasn't that way before. Um, 
And but the thing I would say is that like it, this has not been a particularly wise investment for a while. And so in a way, like I don't know, I don't want to speculate too much, but I don't know if it's just the fact that Britain basically made money laundering legal that like that's one of the things that keeps it rolling. But the degree to which like it keeps ticking on, where like you know, you can see these fundamentals getting worse and worse. You can see like this disconnect between housing prices for new builds or resale and you know wages in this country. And it's like and yet. I, I know you're joking, but making money laundering legal sort of is what we did in the 70s. Because something, are you familiar with euro dollar markets? To some extent. So it's, 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 it's basically be. because of commodities, right? That like commodities bought in dollars, but then they have a lot of basically dollars in cash in European banks. Yeah. So what happened, the, the, the thing that London had, which it again really no longer does have, like the thing that made it London, the thing that cre- that the big bang of deregulation was also kind of designed to facilitate was. Oddly enough, connected to the Saudis cutting oil production, oil prices skyrocketing, all oil production, all oil purchases being denominated in dollars. dollars. And so and so third party so third nation transactions. So like Senegal buying oil from Saudi Arabia at a hugely inflated price would be would then happen in London. And then the idea was what London offered was that American banks that were set up in London that that were transacting and, and British banks as well that were transacting in dollars would then be able to say, we are going to be able to have a dollar economy outside the U.S. regulatory umbrella. And so we are going to... And then, you know, the Tories happily facilitated it. But the problem is, like, number one, that was facilitated... Like, that ended up, like, when when that sort of particular um, uh, flow, let's say, changed, right? That ended up sort of stopping. And, um, and, and then one of the things we had was, we were, okay, well, at least we're a dollar clearinghouse for Europe. We're no longer that. So yeah, it's a, it's pretty much, uh, you know, and one of the one of the um, sort of you know one of the things that you know you might like about Marx's writing is his use of sort of ghoulish ghoulish imagery and the sort of the macabre as many in the nineteenth century were fond of doing, talking about capital as dead labor. Well, I mean, if you want to look at any place that is more a, a bigger fucking mummy, right, a a a dead fucking corpse, you would look probably at a rentier economy that doesn't even have the money laundering anymore. A fu- you know what it is? It's it's fucking neon. I mean, I will say it's house I, price neon. I don't want to go so far out on a limb to say the United Kingdom doesn't have money laundering anymore, but it's just because it absolutely does. But I think that yeah, the dynamics have definitely changed. I just think that it's strange to me in a way that like, and you know, maybe referencing what we talked about in the beginning, the kind of captive press that's whose job it is to sort of crack crack the whip on anyone who questions you know, that the government is in control or that the government is always, you know, solving the problem or about to solve the problem if the enemy of the state just didn't fucking pull their dastardly roadrunner cartoon tricks on them. Um, so I guess I was just thinking about this. Yeah, like it just seems very, very strange that it the, the, the music hasn't stopped yet. And like, all right, famous last words in the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. But like, <laughs> Yeah, it's it's it is it is nuts to me when you look at the fundamentals of things getting worse. And I know you said you were going to talk about some some elements of some things that happened in the last five years well, that are making things worse. Well, so the, the I mean, this is actually it's worth bringing this in. I, I I sort of listened to um I listened I enjoy a sort of lots of the fine podcasting on the Bloomberg Network and uh, some of it because it's good, others of it because it's stuff like what I'm about to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there's a uh, so Nick Candy, one of the sort of poster children i think of the uh number he has a funny name it's ridiculous i was gonna say yeah yeah, yeah. milo voice inventor of the gumdrop yes nick candy inventor <laughs> of the gumdrop uh he, so he's Long known for basically name. creating the ultra luxury high-end westminster based property that's mostly there for like you know like saudi princes right he he's the developer he and his brother 
uh, are behind uh, one Hyde Park, like the most expensive block of flats ever sold. Um, and he's now basically saying like, yeah, the music is up for London, but because but he can't see it in that way. So I actually I transcribed some of the podcast. Uh, Candy said the flow of capital to Dubai has changed. People are going because they're fed up with the crime in the countries they live in. It's not just London. It's other countries around Europe and the West. Some of the values we once cherished in Western countries are not the same values you've got today. And that value system actually is sometimes better in the Middle East than here. So I think that the UAE is going to attract that money, which may not be the cleanest money, but every city in the world has got that. It's like I, I, I saw a Morlock, so I'm going to move to the United Arab Emirates. I assume I'll be Eloy there. <laughs> and... You know, it's, uh, this is this is this is like a, a rich housing uh, developer uh, who develops houses for the rich, who is who is saying in who's echoing the same point that we're making, right? Which is the the unique selling point of this place is disappearing. It's kind of going, but he's only able to see it in terms of again Daily Mail headlines, right? London has fallen, kind of shit. Yeah. yeah, he actually he says he said, and this is. I, I my jaw dropped when he said this because I was like I cannot believe that this is what that this is going to drive billions of dollars of investment decisions and it's mostly I think to be honest is like guys like Candy their job is to go where the rest of the money is so that they can then be like handmade into the capital to capital and then be made billionaires themselves for it but just the fact that he said this as a pull factor a push factor away from London and towards somewhere like Dubai he said. I'm also sorry to say uh, that's the case, and people might not like it, but when young kids in schools are being taught transgender, I just don't think it's right. <laughs> Alice, can you please stop facilitating the decline of the United Kingdom and forcing people to move to Dubai, a very sane place? Yeah. And he says, you know, he says, I think there's once in a generation where a new city or country will evolve, and once in our children's generation, a new city or country will evolve, and this time it's Dubai. And look, the thing is, anything that any anytime you're talking to a VC or a property developer, mm-hmm. you need to understand that the only thing they ever do is pump their bags. Sure. That's all they're ever doing. And so if he is invested in Dubai, then of course he's gonna say that Dubai's the future. That's like you're gonna go on Bloomberg, say that, and hopefully maybe someone else buys one of his like luxury flats, like actual luxury flats, right? The kind of places <laughs> with a servants' quarters. And I mean to be honest, yeah. that's every fucking apartment in the United Arab Emirates, but yeah, Roger. True. Unless but, it's the one that servants live in when they're not living in servant quarters, <laughs> yeah, so, which are dormitories, but yeah. So um, and so, but then, you know, even though he's repeating all of the usual, like, like lines about knife crime, he's just, he's not able, or it's not in his interest to see that actually what has happened is that Dubai has taken over that role. It has taken over that role of the international dodgy yeah. money clearinghouse. Obviously, I don't want to say it's ironic because I think it's just like, just very, very obvious. But what he's effectively saying is that like, you know, because I, I, I was wondering where I heard this guy, where I heard this guy's name is like, number one, because he's Holly Valance's. Uh, uh, who had like very some interesting opinions about uh, COVID vaccines, um, her, her husband, but also, um, yeah, all the sort of like property developments that he was kind of in charge of when London was really trying to, or, or when London would basically facilitate that type of like, you know, it was, it was a very good market for building these types of properties that no one could afford primarily because they were speculative assets, right? And like what Dubai has done is basically kind of expanded that on a much larger scale and provided, and they've opened, they openly say this, right? Because Dubai right now is on a very big push to try get as many wealthy boys, like people with money to come in to like basically buy up speculative assets, right? That's Mm -hmm. kind of like what it is designed for. Um, When we went to Dubai uh, for a few days for our honeymoon last year, what was really telling was that like, 
Yeah, in those types of places that he is advertising as being like, you know, Dubai, like sort of the city of the future. These are all just kind of places where like um, tourists, uh, expats, like very wealthy expats uh, move to in order to basically like continue doing speculative work and the kind of domestic labor um, sort of live right in the outskirts. Like Dubai has built this, um, built this like public transportation network. And if you go right to the end of it, that's sort of where, and like, you know, so this is like an hour and a half journey right at the end of it is sort of where the, um, where all the sort of like migrant labor, uh, lives and they don't live in dormitories. They don't live in rooms. They like, they rent beds, right? If you go, if you go all the way there, you will see stickers, uh, advertising beds where you can pay to just have a bed to sleep in for like a few hours. You can like a bed to sleep in for the night, a bed to sleep in for the day. So like the conditions there are like really, really Awful. not good yeah. unless you are someone who has a shit ton of money, largely in speculative property. And like what he seems to be saying is that like London just isn't kind of the space to do that anymore because it isn't really. And, you know, I was, I was, I was wondering how much of this also just comes back to the fact that like, while London is definitely still kind of, well, you know, while the only kind of, I, I, cause I was going to say this earlier in the episode, that perhaps the reason why there's so much protection or like the desire to kind of protect homeowners uh, landlords and stuff is really just because like the kind of pretense that Britain, the fantasy that Britain has allowed itself to kind of engage with, which is like, we're a wealthy country because people own assets and these assets mm -hmm. are worth like loads of money. And then, you know, when you realize that actually, especially like at this time where it's like, oh, actually we're like, you know, uh, the inflation rate means that we're really not that wealthy and uh, these assets aren't really worth anything. And we really don't earn that much. Maybe the reality is also sort of sinking in for them, which is like, they would much rather go to a place where they can at least kind of have the, the, you know, the, the luxury, the accessible luxuries that can convince themselves that they are rich and wealthy, um, which they just simply can't do over here. And so maybe for him, um, the kind of appeal in Dubai is basically like, it is a much more, um, accommodating place to basically like be a rich guy. And you just can't really do that here because even if you're like a kind of somewhat well-off middle-class person over here, your living conditions have declined. And like, mm -hmm. you can sort of see that in like, you know, your every, you know, in your just like daily life. Again, it's like yeah. that thing where it's just like, well, you can have like a nice like Porsche or a Bentley, but if you still have to use like ro roads that are covered in potholes and are constantly broken, then like, you know, you, yeah, you're, you're not you're really living. You're still living with the consequences of all of that. Yeah, and, it, and, it, and, it, and in Dubai, it's designed in such a way where like you basically, if you have money, you don't have to have, you, you know, you don't get, you don't need, like you, you, there are no consequences. They design yeah, I mean, it in such a way where like you can basically live the easiest life in the world. Unless, unless, unless in any way whatsoever, you, you uh, come into contact in a negative way with an Emirati citizen, in which case, like, then you realize that you have zero rights <laughs> yeah. and the whole system is built on that. They've, they got, they got consultants in from the Queensland anti-Hooning uh, patrol in order to be able to mete out immediate consequences. I mean, it was really funny that you mentioned Hooning because this is a really quick story, but a friend of mine worked uh, temporarily in Abu Dhabi and one of his flatmates, because like, it was a bunch of guys basically working for six months out of the year, nine months out of the year. Um, and in jobs in the Emirates, and then they rotate back to America. Uh, one of his housemates was also like a guy in his 40s or 50s working in one of these jobs. And this guy owned a car in Dubai, and it was parked in the parking lot of their apartment building in, or not in Dubai, in Abu Dhabi. And one night he was asleep, and his car was parked in the parking spot in, you know, for the building. And an Emirati dude <laughs> was hooning the fuck out of like a Ferrari or something. <laughs> crashed into his car in the parking lot 
Now, the car was stationary and parked and off, and he wasn't in it. He was asleep in his bed. Guess who got found at fault for that accident? <laughs> Shouldn't the, have, look, you should have known that there was going to be an Emirati guy driving there. Yeah, you should have known that this guy's car is so badass that you need to make sure you're always making way for it. And it's like, that's just one tiny anecdote. But I find it very funny because it's like, it, it is strange the degree to which a zero tax environment will make people who basically under other circumstances would like absolutely lose their shit in the Facebook comments when they saw something about this kind of impunity being, you know, meted out by a non-white person or a non-Christian person. But like the the the, the siren song of paying no fucking taxes mm-hmm. and the degree to which like you can, as Hussein was saying, kind of like get the trappings of, you know, ultra wealthy conveniences, get ersatz versions of those on the cheap. But it's not just that, though, right? It's that Dubai has a value proposition. Mm-hmm. They provide a service in ways that we are we sort of have lost, except for rentierism. And and this is actually what I want to go to before we close. Yeah, which is that you know this comes back to you know Hugh Pill's remark. Hugh Pill being an economist in the Bank of England monetary. Wait, you had a guy named Nick Candy and a guy named Hugh Pill. Yes, why? Because it sounds like Q pilled. It's like it's just very oh, yeah, very Q pilled. Yeah, I'm, I'm fucking Hugh pilled. I, I, I'm extremely well, middle class guy from England. Well, weirdly, I am. I after see, re- seeing this speech, I am sort of slightly Hugh pilled because he's to be like the the whole sort of orchestra of media and politics for the last sort of you know since the financial crisis since like the big bang since whenever you want to start counting has been while britain has started the initially very profitable but now stripping the copper wire out stage of unwinding itself as a going concern everyone was being told and everyone was being made to feel whether through like cheap fake credit whether through things like uh you know help to buy constantly inflating um uh, you know um uh, house prices, whether through the, the just selling off of North Sea oil and the, and the entire social security state, blah, 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 all of that. They're made to feel wealthy. And the fact that, you know, there's someone on the Monetary Policy Committee saying you are not wealthy is kind of one of the first cracks in the veneer of that fake reality, that that world that causes people to stop seeing to, to start seeing the world for what it is around them. Because the problem is that's true. Britain is less wealthy and the fact that just this have this be acknowledged, right, is a huge difference. The problem is, of course, is that because this is the British Monetary Pol- the Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee and they're British, they have to say, well, it's kind of everyone's fault. It's uh, labor's pro- fault for demanding higher wages, but also it's, co- it's um, like companies, especially grocery companies, especially grocery companies, fault for using this as an opportunity to jack up prices and then leave them high, even though gas prices are abating. I know we're, we're, we want to keep it succinct, but like I'm a little bit taken aback by the idea that anyone can say it's labor's fault for demanding higher wages when like inflation is so high that like unless you have double digit wage increases, you are fundamentally getting poor. You are earning well, less. And like the Bank of England, in order to meet its mandate, says everyone has to agree to be poorer or we're going to have inflation, which is going to go. That's their argument, right? Is that everyone has to agree to be poorer or we're going to have um, inflation that will cause you to be poorer anyway. And that the, the message is, right, that everyone has to stop playing past the parcel by either demanding a higher wage or raising their prices. And we just have to allow inflation to settle and everyone, companies and people have to be concede to be, be poorer. That's the problem with, uh, you know, of course, what Pill is saying, uh, obviously. But the other thing I notice 
is that the Bank of England for the last five years has been saying again and again and again in lots of public statements that the idea that profit taking is a contributor to inflation is nonsense. It's bunk. And to see Pill go on and again, in the context of a bunch of other things that are wrong, right? Like that like there is anything that there's much of a relationship between wage growth and inflation at all at the moment in Britain, right, is is regrettable. But to even just see the idea, the view that excess profit taking is inflationary which used to like be a fringe crazy position at somewhere like the BOE. They would get laughed out of the room if you took that view. Yeah. Um, Hugh Pill has a brother named yeah. Theodore Pill. And so <laughs> if you t- instead of the Hugh Pill, you take the Ted Pill, you just say, nah, it's bollocks. <laughs> so, so, you know, like this is uh, 17.3% food inflation, right? Like, you know, he's based, and, and the, the message from the BOE, and this has been pretty consistent, is workers, stop striking, stop changing jobs, just accept that you're poorer. And now they're also saying, companies, stop hiking prices. Everybody just fucking stop. Of course, that's ridiculous, right? Also, because a lot of this is... This is kind of... But like, like, look, I'm not exactly Mr. Economics, but as I understand it, the overwhelming majority of what we have been dealing with post-COVID has been due to supply chain issues because of all of the disruptions. And then also energy prices, especially in Europe. And then also piss taking on the part of consumer prices which is worse in america but still a huge problem here of basically like opportunism on the part of just raising prices you know oh yeah canada's switzerland price now it's fucking insane yeah america's switzerland price dude i was back in i was back in new york and this i don't want to derail too much but like a thing of yogurt that would cost you fucking like a like a one liter tub of yogurt that would cost you like five pounds in fucking sainsbury's was like 14 dollars in brooklyn I was just like, and this was not like at fucking Whole Foods. This was like at a regular, regular grocery store. I was just like, this is insane. Like, I, I hadn't been back to America in so long since you know, pre-COVID. I was just like, it genuinely prices have doubled, if not more, yeah. on everything. Mm. So, but you, you're, you know, what you say is basically correct, right? One of the major things driving inflation in Europe is, is spikes in the gas price, which we're heavily yeah. dependent on. And because all the big firms, the way that they buy, right, they buy... The, the ones that didn't do this, by the way, the like the energy companies that were just started as a customer service like operation outside of someone's bedroom mm-hmm. that then ends up like failing catastrophically, but like still Octopus gets access to energy at wholesale yeah, and yeah, then yeah. sells it to you at a market. What they yeah. do is they don't they never the, the reason they went into business is they didn't buy ahead. They just bought spot, a spot price yeah. on the day. Well, also, like Britain yeah. having high gas prices but, has nothing to do with 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 European gas prices other than the spot market, because Britain's government refuses to intervene. Like we are we, we had like a one percent exposure to Russian gas. It's but, it's. It's it, it's it's a bit more complicated than that, but suffice to say, right, is that these price the price reductions in natural gas don't work their way through right away, just because there's so much hedging on the part of the big firms. It sure. just means that price changes happen slowly at the consumer level. Whatever, that's fine. It, but it does mean that the that, that the inflation is is if inflation driven by energy prices is slowly coming down. But what you notice is that the actual price paid by people is not is it's not coming down the price and and what causes food inflation as well is the fact that the production and shipping of all this food that you're getting if you're your fucking orange in britain is a hugely energy intensive process and so you know the the high gas prices kind of they touch everything right and so and 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 you know the 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 monet but and so the the idea i think that this is that there is some kind of wage price spiral is a been thoroughly d- disproven and despite the fact that there is this crack in the armor of like, no, Britain is no longer prosperous coming from an official source. That actually, I think, is politically useful. And I think the fact that they're acknowledging that profit taking is playing at least a part in this represents a huge fucking change at an institutional level. But the ECB goes one step further and they've said they see no relationship between wages and inflation. 
which I think is obviously, you know, you know, based ECB, based Draghi, whatever yeah, it takes. Yeah, exactly. Everybody, the, the five people who listen to this podcast in Greece are like, I'm fucking coming to London to murder Riley. But yeah, <laughs> I understand what you mean. I understand the, the joke you're making and the yeah. point you're making. So, so, so basically, right, this is, um, is that coming back around on it, there is, it is increasingly impossible to ignore that the rentier economy only works if it's parasitical on something else. And the something else is fucking leaving. It's going away. It's going to Dubai. That's why Nick Candy is looking at Dubai and not fucking Kensington. Because that's where the money's going. Because we had one job in the global economy and we just sort of stopped doing it. Have you considered, though, the, the, the emergency safety valve that will save Britain's economy? Which is that there is a genre of rich person who is just simply too perverted to live in the United Arab Emirates. Like <laughs> they just, they, the, the, the kind of shit they're into, they just mm. can't get away with Perfect. in the UAE. We're, we're going to be butler to the world's sex party. Exactly. Awesome. We, 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 we are going to be like the wholesale kink supplier to rich people. <laughs> but, butler in assless chaps to the world. <laughs> I think that's probably as good a place as any to end this episode. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening to this uh, this fine this fine episode of TF with a, uh, a a a new configuration and not the permanent fig configuration. Don't worry, Milo's on <laughs> holiday after Melbourne Comedy <laughs> Festival, and Alice is very tired. No, I didn't so. I didn't mean fine in terms of just fine. I meant fine in terms of fine like wine, fine like wine, and fine. also acceptable. <laughs> uh, and don't forget, there is Patreon. We have Patreon that you can be a part of. Uh, yes, this is the free episode. It's five bucks a month. It's a uh, second episode every week. We've it's got Britainology. We've I'll got Writtenology. Uh, we've also got live shows on the 14th, 15th, and 16th. And, and 21st. 21st. Yes. Yeah, so uh, we will be in the middle of May touring the Midlands and North and as Scotland. well as, as one city in Scotland, but one major city in Scotland that we have never played before so this is a pretty significant milestone for us so we're going to be in birmingham on the 14th of may we are going to be in leeds on the 15th and in manchester on the 16th and then sunday the 21st we'll be in glasgow so uh, those tickets are on sale i will link to them in the show notes as well um and yeah we also have a patreon like riley said five five dollars a month gets you almost all the bonus content ten dollars a month gets you extra britainology and writtenology because mm -hmm. we are anything if not consistent, mm -hmm. we had a name we liked and we just slightly changed it. <laughs> We're just hammering that big ology button again and again and again. We also have a Twitch stream on Monday and Thursday nights. It runs from 9 to 11 p.m. UK time. You can, uh, it's trash, it's twitch.tv slash trash future or just go to slop.delivery and it will link you, it will, it will forward you to our, our Twitch page. Our theme song is Here We Go by Ginseng. It is available on Spotify and basically everywhere and you should listen to it a lot because we have graciously used it as our theme music with Ginseng's permission uh, for almost six years. For a quite a quite while. Quite a long time. Yes. And uh, and yeah, listen to listen to all the spin-out shows, listen to 10K Posts, listen to Masters of Our Domain, listen to, well, there's your problem. The whole Napathay extended the, yeah, universe. Except there's uh, there's, there's, there's the too shows, many to list The now. shows that I don't produce at all and never have, but they're on the list that someone made for some reason. Uh, all that stuff. Is there anything we've forgotten to plug, Riley? Uh, no, I think not. Uh, so we will see you in a couple of days on the bonus. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.